Well, we started this series in the Gospel of Mark last week, and we are, surprise, surprise, continuing it this week. Uh, we'll be in it for a little while with a few breaks here and there, but in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, is where we'll be this morning, down through verse 20. And so you can read with us if you have it open. If not, it'll be on the screen here behind me. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were mending their nets in their boat. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, I can remember as a child, nearly every playground that my mother and father would take us to had all kinds of apparatus. I don't know if that's a word, but it's going to be this morning. But all kinds of playground equipment on which to play. And one of the fixtures of playgrounds back in the 80s was a merry-go-round. I remember those things. They don't make them anymore, right? In this day of, if I can just maybe call it what it is, helicopter parenting, where everybody's trying to put their kids in a bubble and protect them from getting any kind of injury or harm. Now, merry-go-rounds, listen, I think those things were created to make you throw up. I'm, I'm pretty sure, right? Um, but a merry-go-round was this large circular wheel uh, that was, on, I don't know, kind of fixed, had a fixed center or a hub around which it spun. And it had these bars that came up on the top about every two feet apart, and they uh, and kind of went down into the center to hold on to. And the purpose of the merry-go-round, kids, if you've never seen one, you may not have, but basically a merry-go-round, you got on and you tried to hold on for dear life while somebody else tried to spin you as fast as they could in a circle, okay? And so by the end of whatever round it was, if you'd just eaten breakfast, lunch, or dinner, you were a little nauseous, standing on the side, dizzy, the world was spinning around you, you couldn't find firm footing for yourself on the ground, right, because you were spinning in such a rapid pace, but the merry-go-round had this fixed center or this hub around which it rotated. And if that fixed center was not present, if that hub wasn't there, then it would spin out of control. There was nothing holding it down. It would spin out of control or it just wouldn't spin at all. It would just grind itself into the ground. It would make life, it would make, make playing on it very, very difficult. And listen, like that merry-go-round, all of our lives have some fixed center to them. They all have some hub around which they revolve. Every single, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have some fixed point at the center of their life around which everything else turns. Right? And in the Gospel of Mark, what Mark is quick to show us at the very outset of the Gospel is that when Jesus calls us to himself he's calling us to make him the fixed center around which our lives would revolve he's calling us to make him that fixed hub around which our lives rotate right um, and, and here's the reality in in this particular text that we're going to dive into this morning when jesus calls disciples to himself right, we got to recognize that in that culture and in this culture Everyone is being discipled by someone. Everyone's being discipled by something. It may not be Jesus, but all of our lives are being shaped by someone or something. 
We're all following someone or something, right? Something or someone is setting our priorities, is telling us, giving us our identity, is formulating for us a list of activities, okay? Someone or something is that fixed center around which our lives are rotating and it's shaping us. It's forming us as we follow it. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have that. It might be family for some of us. Our family of origin might be career or vocation for others. That every decision that we make is about our family or every decision that we make is about our career. Right? It's about, maybe some of us, it's trends. You know those people, right? Every time something comes out on Facebook, they're the first person that has it. They're wearing it. They're writing it. They're, they're decorating with it. Whatever it is, right? They're just the trendy people and it's shaping their lives. It might be cultural forces. It might be hobbies. It might be athletics. It might be academics. Right? And not, not that any of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but for, for some of us, they become so central to our lives that they shape the rest of our life. And for us to respond to Jesus' call to follow Him means that He becomes the fixed center, that He becomes the hub, that He becomes that which around our lives rotates. That He's the one that holds us together. Following Jesus, we've said before here at Redeemer, is this. It means that we order our everyday, ordinary lives. Not just our Sunday morning time. Not just our Sunday evening time. But our everyday, ordinary lives. From getting up to f- and fixing waffles and pancakes for your kids before they head out the door to school. Or before you start instruction in your home. To uh, going off to, to work in your office complex or in the, in the shop that you work at. Your everyday, ordinary life on the sports fields and the activities that you're busting your kids around to. Your everyday, ordinary life. Ordering your everyday, ordinary life around the message and the mission of Jesus. That's what it means to follow Him. And that's what Jesus invites us to. That's the call that He places upon us. And in, Mark's, in this particular text in Mark's Gospel, we want to see two things about that call. Right? Two things about that call. First of all, we want to see that this call that Jesus places on us is absolutely radical. Absolutely radical. Listen, I want to show it to you from the text. Listen, when Jesus calls Simon and Andrew... In, in, verses, uh, 16, in verse 16, when he calls Simon and Andrew, they immediately leave their nets and follow him. They drop their nets. And then when he goes along a little further and he finds James and John, they're mending their nets in the boat and they leave both their nets and their father in order to follow Jesus. So listen, these first disciples, they leave behind family and they leave behind career in order to put their feet on the path of discipleship, of ordering their everyday, ordinary life around Jesus. Right? They're setting aside their nets, and they're setting aside family in order to follow Jesus. In other words, to follow Jesus means your identity. Listen, church, your identity is no longer bound up in your vocation or your family of origin, but your identity is now bound up in the one whom you're following. And so when Jesus issues this call, it's absolutely radical in His culture and in ours. Right? So to follow Jesus means long, no, you no longer identify yourself by the home in which you were raised or the office in which you work. That's no longer the primary way by which you see yourself, the lens through which you view yourself. Right? Your identity is no longer bound up in those things because Jesus takes precedence and priority over both your family of origin and your vocation. Now listen, in different cultures and for different people, one of these two things that these early disciples are leaving behind might be more difficult than the other. Listen, in Eastern cultures and in ancient cultures, 
the family was everything. The fam- and not just the nuclear family, right? A husband, wife, and 2.3 kids and a dog. <laughs> but the extended family. Right? The grandmothers and grandfathers, the aunts and uncles, the cousins, the family was everything. And there's elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus says, listen, if you're going to follow me, then you must hate your mother and father. You must hate your brother and sister. Right? What does he mean by that? It doesn't mean you hate them actively, but you hate them comparatively to, towards your, in, a, in comparison to your love for him. Because he takes precedence and priority over them. And for some of us, that's, that's our hang-up, maybe with following Jesus. Because our identity for so long has been tied to our family of origin. But Jesus said, I've got to take precedence over them. For others of us, it might be our vocation. And listen, in Western and modern cultures, that's how we identify ourselves. is by our vocations, by our career, by our success in it, by our promotions, by our positions, by the earning potential that it might have. That's how we find identity. Not in our family of origin, right? In our very individualistic culture, right? Most of us in modern America are like, can I get free from my mom and dad, okay? I want to strike out and be my own person and and blaze my own trail. And the way that we do that is through, oftentimes through our career and through our vocation. And that's where we bind up so much of our identity. And what we do and how much we make and where we spend our nine to five. But listen, for these first disciples, when Jesus says, come, follow me, they immediately abandon their family of origin and they immediately abandon their vocation to set someone else at the center of their lives and to order their lives around him. Now, when, when we think about this radical call that Jesus gives, it might bring to mind or elicit in some of our minds these images of religious fanatics, right? And some of us are a little turned off by religious fanaticism, okay, right? The people who show up with picket signs and boycotts and all those kinds of things. Or, or we look at the, the religious fanaticism that it seems Jesus is calling us to here and says, hasn't the world been damaged enough by religious fanatics? Don't you see the violence that's been perpetrated in the name of religion and of God? But listen, here's what, I, here's what I would say to you. If that's you this morning and you think, well, can't, man, can't we just find a Jesus that says moderation in all things, right? That's, that's the kind of Jesus we want, right? The kind of Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm not going to be very invasive in your life. I'm not going to be very intrusive in your life, right? I, 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 you, can, you can just, just moderation in all things. But this, is, this radical call that Jesus extends doesn't allow for that. Jesus doesn't say, listen, there are some JV Christians and some varsity Christians, right? There are some who are just in regular infantry and there are some who are special forces and the special forces people are the ones who leave behind father and mother and nets. It's not what he says. He says, if you're going to relate to me at all, you're going to respond to my call and that call is not for a special select few good men and women like the Marines, right? But it's for all people who would relate to Jesus. Right, not all, all things in moderation. That's not what Jesus says. But see, for, for some of us who think about religious fanatics that way, listen, what, I, what you need to understand is that those folks haven't gone too far with Jesus. They haven't gone far enough. They haven't gone far enough. You see, the people who show up at protests and picket signs and boycotts and, and with defamatory uh, words condemning others in their sin, 
those individuals haven't gone too far with Jesus. They haven't gone far enough because here's what they've done. They've repented of their immorality, but they have not repented of their self-righteousness. They have not gone far enough in understanding who Jesus is and responding to him. So yes, this call of Jesus is absolutely radical. That we would identify ourselves in way, that we would identify ourselves with him, that he would be the hub, the center of our life. Everything would revolve around him. We'd order our everyday, ordinary lives around him. But the call of Jesus is also, listen, not only radical, but it's restorative. And it's restorative in two ways. It's restorative first, culturally. Culturally. Listen, in verse 15, Jesus says, we looked at this a little bit last week. He says, the, king, when the first things out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's breaking into human history. Here Jesus, the king, the Christ, right, the anointed one, is standing in their midst. The king has arrived, so the kingdom is near. It's right here. You can begin to see it. You can begin to experience it even now because in his first advent, when Jesus shows up, he shows up to inaugurate his kingdom. In his second advent, he will eventually consummate his kingdom. But in the first advent, he inaugurates the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and reign of God in the lives of people in which Jesus is submitted to, Jesus is honored, Jesus is obeyed, Jesus is worshipped. Our knees are bent to Him and Him alone. The kingdom exists everywhere. People recognize Jesus as the rightful King. And Jesus says the kingdom has arrived. But listen, the kingdom of God is not only, His rule and reign is not only about saving souls and evacuating them to heaven. Okay? If it were, then all of us in the room who are Christians, there would be no reason for us to be here any longer. Right? If it was just, hey, I'm going to save you and suck you up into heaven. Right? That's not, what the, not, that's not all the kingdom is about. Listen, the kingdom, what you see throughout the Bible, is this inbreaking of God's rule into human history in such a way that the whole created order is going to eventually one day be restored. That everything that is broken will be healed. All disease will be eradicated. Right? That, that, that everything that is sick with sin and selfishness will one day be fully and finally restored. Everything will be put back together so it works like it was supposed to. Listen, this is why in one of the other gospel accounts in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 22, John the Baptist in that gospel account at this time, is in prison as well. And he sends two of his followers to Jesus to ask if he's indeed the one who was to come or should they look for somebody else. And so they, they show up. This delegation sent by John shows up and finds Jesus. And when they, when, they, when, they, when they find Jesus, they ask him that question. And Jesus, when he responds to them, he gives them an answer. That doesn't seem like an answer at all unless you understand the Old Testament and prophecy. Okay, because when they find Jesus, they see Jesus healing people of their diseases, their plagues, evil spirits are cast out, the, the, the sights restored to the blind. And Jesus says this to them when they say, are you the one or should we look for another? He says in Luke 7.22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And listen, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're like, what? 
But in Isaiah 35, where Isaiah prophesies about a day in which God would come to save, is one of the most profound statements of Jesus' identity. Listen to what Isaiah says in verse 35 and 6 of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Listen, what Jesus is doing when He causes the blind to see, when He causes the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the mute to speak, He begins to preach the good news to the poor. He's fulfilling prophecy, yes, but he's, what He's doing is He's making things work the way they were supposed to work. He's making eyes and ears work the way they were supposed to work. He's making limbs work the way they were supposed to work. Mouths work the way they were supposed to work. Even relationships and power work the way they were supposed to work because He's preaching the good news, the Gospel to who? Not the rich and powerful, but the poor. Those who have been downcast and oppressed and overlooked. He's bringing the good news to them. He's not pandering to the wealthy and powerful, but He's going after the weak and the lowly. He's making all things work the way they were supposed to work. In Jesus, first Adventist King, He begins to make all things new. I'm reminded of that scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, particularly the cinematic depiction of that book. Whenever, yeah, in Narnia, what you find very early on in the story is that it's always winter and never what? Never Christmas. Right? It's always bitter cold and icy, but there's never any joy or warmth or celebration. It's always winter and never Christmas. And yet there are rumors that are spreading throughout the land that this great king, this lion named Aslan, is on the move. And everywhere that Aslan goes, as they journey across the kingdom, what you see is that, in the, particularly in the cinematic depiction of this story, is that as the children, right, and, and, and Father Christmas or whoever he is in the book, right, as, as they ride across what looks like the Arctic tundra, it begins, the ice begins to melt and the snowbank begins to dissolve and all of a sudden this great forest and prairie emerge. Things begin to turn green and grow. Birds begin to sing. Wildlife begin to frolic in the leaves. Because everywhere Aslan goes, things get healed. And He inaugurates that in His first coming and He will consummate that in His second. That's why in Revelation chapter 21, when John sees the new heavens and the new earth, he says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will, they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And Andy Minio, a Christian artist, said it this way in a song, Death Has Died. He said, one day, my God going to crack the sky. Now, he says it much more eloquently than I can um, because he's a hip-hop artist and I'm just a preacher. But he says, bring truth to every lie, justice for every crime. All our shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. No more broken hearts. No more broken homes. No more locking doors. No more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. No more cancerous cells that will take our loved ones. 
No more hungry kids. No more natural disasters. No child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we wear all black and death will be dead and we'll lock the casket. See, this is the world that we all want, but we all recognize it is not the world that is, but the Bible says it is the world that will be. This is kingdom. The rule of God breaking into human history, renewing all things. So it's restorative culturally, but it's also restorative personally, church. Listen, in verse 17, when Jesus calls Simon and Andrew to follow him, he says this, I will make you become fishers of men. Fishers of men. I used to think I knew what that meant until I really began to try to dig into it and understand what Jesus is saying there. But listen, in the old Jesus, if you understand the Old Testament again, or the, the broader picture of the Bible, what you begin to see is that Jesus is drawing on a very graphic biblical image in order to communicate something about the call of discipleship, about the result of that call as we follow him, as we cease to identify ourselves by our family of origin, right, the home that we were raised in, or our vocation, the office where we work, or the place that we work. We don't identify ourselves as that any longer. That's not the hub around which our life rotates. It's now Jesus, and we're following him, ordering our everyday, ordinary lives around him, radically breaking from all the ways in which we identified ourselves in the past. To be a part of this kingdom, to submit to his rule. As we do that, the result of that, Jesus says, is that we would become fishers of men. And he draws on this graphic biblical image because in the Bible, listen, I love the lake. I love the ocean. Right? I love to fish. Okay? I, I could spend all day on the water soaking a line. Okay, I don't soak a whole lot of lines. I actually cast and retrieve and cast and retrieve and cast and retrieve. I'm not a cat fisherman. I'm a bass fisherman. Okay? And so I cast and retrieve and cast and retrieve. I love the lake. But listen, in the ancient world, bodies of water, lakes, seas, particularly non-moving bodies of water, were symbols of chaos and evil and darkness. Which is one of the reasons whenever Jesus stills the storm, the disciples are amazed. Who is this that the wind and the seas would obey him? That the forces of chaos and evil would submit to him? There were places of darkness and evil. And what Jesus says is this, as you follow me, you will become the kind of person who is rescuing people out of one domain and leading them into another. And out of the kingdom of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and leading them to become citizens of the kingdom of our God and His Christ into the kingdom of light. And it, that, so it's not only restorative, culturally but it's restorative personally in individual lives church in individual lives jesus says as you follow me you'll become the kind of person that god uses to rescue people from judgment and evil and chaos and darkness because that's where everyone who is born into this world lives listen to jesus own words in john chapter 3 when nicodemus comes to speak with him one of the things you notice early on in that, in that chapter is Nicodemus comes, he comes to Jesus at night. And that's not just a time stamp for when it happened during the day, but it's John intends us to understand that whenever Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, 
he's coming from a position of darkness. His life is engulfed in darkness. Right? He already stands judged. And in this conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus says, right, we've all seen it at football games, for God so what? Love the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then we stop there. <laughs> but the Bible doesn't. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in Him, but in order that He might in the world, uh, I'm sorry, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he's not, be- he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, Jesus says, listen, if you believe in me, you're not condemned. If you don't believe in me, you're condemned already because that's the position or the condition you were born into. And Jesus says, I've come to rescue people out of condemnation. I've come to rescue people out of darkness and bring them into light from despair to hope, from death to life. And Jesus says, as you follow me, you'll become the kind of person that I use to rescue people out of darkness, into light, out of despair, and into hope. See, the command in this text is not go and fish. Right? Not playing go fish here. It's not go and fish. The command is follow me. And the consequence of that is you will become fishers of men. I will lead you into places and to influence with people as you radically identify with me where you will be used by me to rescue them. George MacDonald was uh, a novelist in the 1800s and he wrote a book about 150 years ago, a children's fantasy novel called The Princess and the Goblin. You can still find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you might find your books, but it's still in, in print. And the book tells a story of a young girl named Irene. She was eight years old. And she lived in this massive mansion. And in the attic of this massive mansion, there was a fairy grandmother type figure that would show up and she would go and meet with. And this fairy grandmother would teach her. She would make her wise. She was kind of like her fairy grandmother guardian type figure. Okay, and so she would go and visit her in the attic. She wasn't always there whenever Irene showed up, but she was there frequently. And one day, her fairy grandmother shows up and she gives Irene a little ball of, uh, uh, gives her, I'm sorry, a ring with a thread attached to it. And on the other side of the thread is a little ball of thread that the fairy grandmother is going to hold on to. So she gives Irene the ring and she holds on to the ball. And she tells Irene that she is to keep that ring with her at all times and that her grandmother will keep the ball. And Irene tells her that she doesn't see the thread attached to it. And she says, oh dear, listen, listen, you, you, cannot, you, you cannot see the thread. It's too fine to see, but you can only feel it. So Irene reaches out and she touches it and she feels the thread. She says, oh, there it is. There it is. And so Irene, um, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the fairy grandmother then tells her that if she ever finds herself in trouble or in danger, she's to take off the ring, put it under a pillow, and put her forefinger on the thread and follow the thread to wherever it leads. And Irene says, oh, yes, grandmother will lead me to you and to safety. And the fairy grandmother responds, yes, it will, but it may be a very roundabout way of reaching me. But you must not doubt the thread no matter where it takes you. 
Just remember that while you hold one end, I hold the other. Now, a few days later, Irene's laying there in bed in the darkness of the night, and the goblins break into her home, and she can hear them snarling in the outside of her door. And so she, she has the presence of mind, even in the midst of her fear, to reach under the pillow, and there she finds the ring. And she feels for the thread, and she takes hold of it. And then she begins to follow the thread. But to her dismay, it does not lead her up the back stairs and into the attic where she's always met with her fairy grandmother. It leads her outside. But she follows the thread. And as she continues to follow the thread, she realizes it's leading her to the mouth of the goblin cave. But she says, I cannot doubt the thread. And so she follows the thread into the cave itself. And as she follows the thread into the cave, she comes to this large rock wall this dead end in the cave, which by all accounts was impassable, but the thread leads right up to that wall. And so she comes to the wall and she realizes where she is. There is a dead end staring her in the face and she throws herself upon the ground at the base of that wall and she begins to weep because she doesn't know how to go any further. But in the midst of her tears... She says, I've got to trust the thread. And so she pulls herself up off of the ground and she begins to remove stone by stone by stone, digging into each stone and that heap of stones and all the rubble and pulling them out until her fingers are bloody. And as she pulls stone after stone, all of a sudden as the wall begins to be dismantled before her, she hears this faint voice and she recognizes it as the voice of her friend Curdy. And as she pulls down all the stones, there her and Curdy embrace. And Curdy says, how in the world did you ever find me? I've been trapped in here for so long. I had no way out. And she says, my grandmother must have sent me. And Curdy says, so Curdy begins to take steps toward the mouth of the cave to, to leave. But the thread continues further past the wall. And Irene begins to follow the thread past the wall. And Curtis begins to move toward the mouth of the cave. And he turns around and he looks at her and he says, where are you going? There's no way out. I've been trapped in there. I explored every avenue. He says, I know it doesn't make sense, but that's where my thread goes. If I had not followed it here, I would not have rescued you. I must follow the thread. You know what, church? That is life with Jesus. Following the thread. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever looked at life and just gone, this does not make any sense. But I sense you leading me. And as you follow him, God puts you, in, in, follow the thread, even when it seemingly leads you into dead ends. But you keep following the thread and you keep following the thread and keep following, and God puts you in a position to begin to tear down stone walls and to be used by Him to rescue people from the domain of darkness and lead them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. As you follow the thread, He makes you fishers of men. Listen. When, reaches, or when Irene reaches that wall, she initially tried to go back. And I think some of us, as we reach obstacles in our lives, 
barriers in our lives. We sensed God's direction and leadership. We prayed about it. We sought godly counsel. And we're following Jesus, centering our life around Him. And it may not look like us abandoning our jobs and moving to the other side of the world, but as we take steps and make choices and decisions to follow Him and honor Him with our lives, sometimes it seems like He leads us right to an impasse. There's no way forward. And our first inclination is to turn around and go back. But you know what? When Irene turns around, the thread didn't go backwards. It only went forwards. That's so why she continued to trust it. Listen, as we follow the thread, God makes us into the kinds of people who become fishers of men. He rescues us from a life that's centered upon self. But he rescues us from our own blindness, from our own deafness, from our own inability to speak and to walk. And then he uses us as instruments to rescue others. And listen, I want you to know this morning, church, listen, the kingdom is this cultural restorative aspect of the call of Jesus, but the gospel is the personal one. The good news. You know what the good news is? Is that Jesus followed his thread. He followed it from a place of safety and security at the Father's side. And he followed it into a manger. And he followed it to a cross. And listen, because he followed his thread all the way to the cross, as you follow yours and put your feet upon the path of discipleship of following him, you can be assured that no matter where it leads you in this life, ultimately it will lead you into his arms. And that's good news. Now, what do we do with all this? All right, real quick as we close, let me give you two things. First of all, as we think about what God is saying to us through this text about being a follower of Jesus, about responding to that radical and restorative call, how ought we order our lives? Listen, first thing is this, is that we ought to live as ambassadors for the age to come. Live as ambassadors for the age to come. Uh, Every time I go to a movie theater, right, we always try to make it just in time for all the previews to have been done um, so that we can actually watch the full feature presentation. Um, but because I don't like sitting through previews. Right? I don't like sitting through trailers. That's why I like watching on-demand movies at home because there are none of those. But listen, every time you go to the theater, if you show up early enough, you sit down in your seat with your popcorn and your drink and you begin to watch the, the, you know, the lights get dim and then the, all these trailers come on. There's like 10 previews for upcoming full feature movies. Okay? And they're showing you what's coming to the theater next. What's out ahead of you? And listen, when God calls, when Jesus calls us to follow him, in the way that we order our lives, in the things that we give our lives to, we ought to be trailers in this world for the full feature presentation of the world that is to come. We ought to be previews of eternity in this world. And part of what that means is this, is that as Uh, As Christians, when we order our lives around the mission of Jesus, that we should be laboring in all kinds of initiatives that leads to things working like they should in this life. So as Christians, our engagement in disaster relief should be a trailer of the age to come. Our engagement in things like feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and tutoring at-risk children, mentoring kids, 
um, seeking to work to end poverty, abortion, sex trafficking, right? Our engagement with inclusion of people of other races, cultures, and ethnicities. All of those things are us working, putting our hands to the plow and being used by God as trailers of eternity, of what things will be like then and there. People can begin to see small glimpses of here and now through our lives as we live as an ambassador for the age to come. Which means that we're not only concerned as a church about evacuating people to heaven, but about seeing God renew this broken world. But second of all, second of all, not only do we live as ambassadors for the age to come, but we ought to engage in intentional evangelism. Listen, as you follow Jesus, God will shape you into the kind of person whose eyes are lifted off themselves and they're placed on God at the center and hub of their lives. You'll be the kind of person who prays for, the kind of person who serves and shares the good news of Jesus that He followed His thread all the way to the cross for them. You'll share that with the people who are around you. But it begins by praying for other people in your life. If you want to engage in intentional evangelism, it begins with prayer. Because listen, you are not the one who is leveraging your rhetorical skill to lead them into a relationship with Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who's saying, live! And they come to life. And so you are dependent upon Him. You pray for them. Let me ask you a question. In your prayer life, as you pray, do you constantly and continually find yourself praying only for needs in your life? Or do you find yourself praying for God to change and shape and save those in your sphere of influence? Do you pray for them to have eyes to see and ears to hear? Do you pray for particular people in your life? Not just generally for somebody in our community to come to faith, but are there particular people that God's burdened your heart with that you're praying for as you seek to engage in intentional evangelism? Second of all, not only do you pray for others, but you also invest in and serve them. You invest in people's lives by serving them. Because as a follower of Jesus, who who has given up on themselves, as we talked about last week, has reached the end of themselves, who's no longer focused on themselves, but now you've been set free from the darkness of selfishness and brought into the light of selflessness, and you can give your attention to the needs of others. And so you pray for them, you invest in their lives by serving particular needs in their life. Is there a neighbor right now? Is there a family member right now? Is there a coworker right now that you can invest in, that you can serve, that you can show up and meet a need? And then third, you become the kind of people who invite and share. Listen, as you pray for and serve, you look for an opportunity to share with them while you're serving them. Because God has so richly served you in His Son. And then you invite them to come to what we would hope would be a gospel-preaching church here at Redeemer to hear the good news. Listen, on your seat this morning, there are, uh, there's an invite card, a couple of invite cards, one that has some upcoming, uh, an upcoming event and ongoing ministries in the life of our church, and the other one is just a simple card you can put in your purse, in your wallet, You can give to people as you meet them in the community and invite them to come and be a part of what God's doing in the life of our church. To invite and share. Right? So you pray, you invest, you invite. You pray, you serve, you share. 
You engage in intentional evangelism. The other day, I'll close with this story. The other day, uh, my daughter, who's eight, she's Irene's age, um, she said, Daddy, um, you know those little cards that we have around the church? She said, can I get some of those to bring to school so I can hand out to my friends? I said, baby, I'd love for you to take some of those cards to school and hand them out to your friends. I think that would be awesome. She comes home a couple of days later. She says, you know, we've got this kid in our class who doesn't believe in God. And so me and she's one of her friends. She said, by the way, this is like the good positive story about my kids, right? I often tell stories about things that just wheels off, right? But she comes to me. She says, daddy, he doesn't believe in God. And so we at the, on the playground, we were talking to him about God. And now he believes in God, but he doesn't know which God to believe in. And so they're, they're tr- like, here they are as an eight-year-old, investing, sharing. And she said, Daddy, can I have some cards to invite people to come to church? I pray that I'd have half that boldness in my own life, and that you would as well. As we radically redefine our lives around the mission and message of Jesus. As we put our feet on the path of discipleship and order our lives around Him. And see restoration taking place in the lives of people personally and in this community culturally. As the kingdom continues to advance, as the snow continues to melt, as people's lives are healed and restored, as you follow the thread. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the good news of Jesus. That he not only lived a life of exemplary holiness and obedience, he only lived to show us how to live, but he lived to substitute himself for us because we could not live that way. That he followed his thread all the way to the cross so that we, as we follow ours and set our feet on the path of discipleship, that we are know that regardless of what obstacles lie in our way, regardless of the barriers, regardless of the suffering and the hardship that we might experience, we know that on the other end of that thread that you hold that end and that it will lead us into your arms one day for all of eternity. So Father, may we as a church respond to the call of Jesus and radically redefine our lives have new hubs around which we would rotate. That Jesus would be at the center. And He would redefine all of our relationships with family, with career, with cultural forces, with academics, with athletics, with trends. He would redefine all of that their identity would be in Him, our worship would be to Him. Father, I pray that as that takes place in our lives, You would make us into the kinds of people that You would use to renew this broken world as we rescue broken people. That we would pray and invite and invest. We would pray and serve and share And that we would not only be concerned about people's souls, but about people's bodies and lives here as well. That we would labor towards the ends 
in our own little corner of the world of seeing things begin to work like they should because you're renewing all things. Give us grace to respond to the call of Jesus this morning, we pray in his name.